Yes, hello, you're listening to the Not The Top 20 podcast. This is our Monday offering. We are sponsored by Betfair. We cover the EFL and we've got plenty to get into today. Without further ado, myself, Ali Maxwell, and him, George Ellick, breaking down everything that happened over the weekend in the EFL. And we'll start, George, in the championship with teams who picked up two wins since we last spoke on Monday. It was a, a double game week, wasn't it? And three championship sides picked up the maximum Six points from a possible six. Sheffield United were one of them, Blackburn Rovers another, and Hull City. Let's start with Blades because they beat Bristol City 2-0, having beaten Redden, having beaten Redden. Redden. <laughs> having beaten Redding in midweek. Probably more accurate to say two wins for Blades and a whole lot of carnage. Slavisa Jokanovic out, Paul Heckingbottom in. The question we chewed on a couple of weeks ago was, do you stick to your guns when you've hired a proven manager who in his previous two jobs at this level started very slowly and then caught fire? The answer was no. They had the started slowly part and they'll never know whether Slav would have caught fire with this blade side. Following several months of strategic planning and a lacklustre start to the season, the board decided that a change was in the best long-term interests of the club. Paul Heckingbottom has been given a contract for four and a half years and started with a win in his first game, a resounding win as well, 2-0 at home to Bristol City. George Alec, your thoughts on events in the red part of Sheffield? Yeah, I mean, I'm just, first and foremost, what a, what a change of pace for our introductions on this podcast. You know, last week in the last time we talked about vegetables for the first uh, four minutes, then here, I thought I was going to sit here for the whole pod and just listen to you, you uh, chat away about the weekend's football. <laughs> uh, I'm fine, thanks for asking. But yeah, it's with Sheffield United, it is hard and I think now somewhat pointless to talk about whether it was right or wrong to, to sack Slavit Sikanovic. All I would say is that it seems like there's been quite a deliberate change of um, strategy from the Sheffield United owners, for, for better or for worse. I find it bizarre that you can appoint Slavit Sikanovic as manager four months ago, a guy who has been completely true to form in terms of what he's done. You know, he, he, you're hiring a guy who's got two promotions from, from the championship. Both in both which uh, those ten years started with with very very poor runs, so to hire a guy, endure the poor run, and then sever ties um, before you find out if if you know the the next part's going to happen seemed to me to be a little bit. Um, it is funny in football that we we don't need very many samples in order to no. decide what will happen in future cases. Do you know? I'm not having a go here. I completely have agreed with you on every point when we've spoken about Blaze this season. But I'm just more of a commentary on football discourse in general. It is interesting to me, and, and this goes the other way with managers, where, where fans say he didn't do well in his last job, therefore he won't do well here. Slav, Slav did benefit in this instance from a lot of people just bringing up he's done this before and therefore... It will happen again, but I guess what you're suggesting is at least worth seeing if it if it could. Or well, no, it, it just it seems weird to hire a guy with that track record and then not be willing to to endure the the, the bad start. You know, it's not a massive surprise that this happens, and I think more so than than clubs, more so than players, managers do follow an arc. You know, we speak about loads of um, different managers across the EFL who, whether it's their their streaky nature, whether it's being unable to arrest bad times of form, whether it's, you know, their players getting injured a lot, you know, they I think that the arc of a manager is much more consistent normally than, than a club or or a player because they are, you know, it is and probably the longer that they're there, it's their own personality and their own character which is implemented onto the team that they're that they're taking charge of. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It it, it seems like whatever happened behind the scenes, 
um, you know, the quote that seems to have annoyed the Sheffield United fans the most was saying that um, Paul Heckingbottom, the new manager, wouldn't be judged on what happened on a Saturday. Now, I, I think that's been taken slightly out of context. I think the idea there is more that he will oversee Sheffield United Football Club as a football manager rather than a head coach, which is um, uh, <laughs> feels like it, you know, it wasn't too long ago that that was uh, a normal thing to be called when you're manager of a football club, but it seems to have created some uh, division here. It was an extraordinary hour-long press conference and one of the most extraordinary parts of it and I'm not making this up, the, the chairman of the club, who no one had ever seen before, let alone heard from, sat down wearing the most remarkable club tracksuit I've ever seen a chairman wear, <laughs> and then spoke at the media for 10-15 minutes before taking any questions. Part of his initial monologue, he said, I spoke to someone who said, you guys are not going to believe that we're calling this guy a football manager. And in, in, in English football terms, you don't even really know what that means. And it's going to be very unpopular. But I don't really care because I'm not English and I'm not really a football guy. And I'm like, <laughs> quite aside from everything you've just said, what do you mean we've never heard of a football manager before? Like it, this is This is almost the reverse of about five years ago where people started appointing head coaches instead of managers and yeah, everyone yeah. went, oh, that's continental. Yeah, I know, it's weird. I mean, I, I don't really get it either. And I, I actually don't think there's been... I, I just thought it was quite weird wording when I read the tweet. I didn't realise it was actually like a deliberate um, shift of, of of job role. But, but anyway, I mean, I, I think there's... Even though some Blades fans reading the owners and the chairman saying you're not going to hear from us much longer but we're basically putting Paul in charge of, of everything at the football club and it doesn't matter if we lose there are going to be some um, alarm bells ringing but I, I think that the decision to move to put somebody in charge of all footballing um, activity as you know it, it sounds almost like Heckingbottom's role is, is something of a hybrid between a head coach and a director of football isn't isn't the worst thing whether or not Paul Heckingbottom himself is the right man to do this I'm not entirely sure you know he's got quite a weird managerial career where he was he was a caretaker at Barnsley he got the job off the back of a good run undeniably taking on what was a very very good job where Lee Johnson had already had them on an upward curve before he left the club he then went to Leeds which went terribly but at the same time I don't think you can massively blame him for that I know Leeds fans definitely would blame him for that but you know, that club at that time wasn't in a particularly good place. And then he went to Hibs, where he had a very, very good start, but things unravelled in- incredibly quickly. Based purely on what he's done in full-time positions at clubs, is he qualified to have this new overarching um, job? It-, it probably doesn't look like it, but crucially, he clearly gets on very well with the owners. That has not been the case with, with previous managers. Obviously, Chris Wilder's relationship with them is very, very strained. Um, he has been the under-23 manager in the past, meaning that he has a very, very good knowledge of the young players that are coming through and it's quite clear that a big part of Heckingbottom's job is to try and bring those young players into the first team and then ideally sell them on for a profit which is what every single EFL club should really be trying to do. This is where Um, I just get a little bit confused is that he kept saying Jokanovic's remit was to take them back to the EPL as he said but Heckingbottom four months later or six months later is appointed with the remit of a very long-term strategy involving the, the, the development of young players. Now, we know those two things basically never go hand in hand. Like young players plus teams challenging at the very top of the championship doesn't really go hand in hand. But we as as people who, who want the these clubs to be run sustainably, who argue against clubs you know, gambling everything on getting promotion should be applauding this move. 
Yeah. And I know that, again, that's not going to go down too well with, with Blades fans. You want their club to be ambitious, and of course you do, and you've got the parachute payments and whatever. If I had no cynicism in my bones, I would be applauding. Yeah, I mean, that that's it. So basically, on paper, I think the quotes don't read very well. I think the decision to hire somebody in Heckenbottom who isn't a particularly flashy appointment doesn't look great. But I think if we take the owner's and the chairman's um, words and actions at face value, which we probably shouldn't do, then it does feel to me like this is possibly not the worst move for the club. Um, did, as I said, the only issue I have is, is Paul Heckenbottom the right person? Is football managers to do this? I'm not sure. Is Stuart McCall the right coach to be taking control on the grass? You know, he's a League Two manager. I'm not sure. Um, those would be my concerns. But in terms of, of long-term strategy, it, it's the kind of move that I... Um, yeah, I, I think with, with a better PR team in front of it, they could have they could have spun this as more of a positive rather than, yeah, you're not going to like this, but this is what we're doing. doesn't really seem to be a, a great way to announce strategic shift. Interesting. I enjoyed that. I, I, I definitely concur. I think it's been handled quite bizarrely and many aspects of it are unusual. I think ultimately I'm happy to wait and see. Uh, that's, all we, that's all we can really do at this point. And, and with Paul Heckingbottom, someone who we did maybe our second or third ever NTT20 meets with. Clearly, we were pretty delighted watching his Barnsley side, not just in promotion, but in their first half season in the Championship as well. They were about as exciting a young team as as we've seen step up a level um, before they got dismantled in the transfer market. And uh, clearly, his time at Leeds did not go well and looks even worse in hindsight because he was replaced by Marcelo Bielsa and, and he did what he did. Now, there's a, a list of about eight consecutive Leeds managers whose time at the club is not looked on very favorably so again it's not something that I would judge I wouldn't just broad brushstroke someone as being a bad manager after a bad spell at Leeds and uh, if I'm honest I know very little about the the Hibs spell so I can't really comment on that but uh, on Sunday it was it was a good performance you have to say um, it was full of speed and energy and intent you know we should certainly caveat that with the fact that Bristol Rovers are a, a very poor football team um, and Sheffield United more or less had their way with them but I was still excited to watch that Blades team yesterday uh, in the remarkable conditions at Bramwell Lane uh, in particular, Morgan, Morgan Gibbs-White, who I feel like I talk about every other week or every three weeks. One of the best individual performances I, I've noticed this season, for sure. Um, some brilliant passing, both long and short. Some incredible skill in tight spaces. Um, seems to have more time on the ball in the final third when things are getting a bit busy and good awareness as well. And, you know, on another day, he probably would have had a goal or two, an assist or two. Um, it's a sign of an excellent player. He's just a constant, constant threat. So relentless when he's on it. And there there aren't that many players like it in the league, I think, just in terms of what he does in the final third, um, but also how strong he is uh, overall. Let's talk about Blackburn Rovers. They went to Stoke on the weekend. They left 1-0 winners. It means they've won five of their last seven in the league, George. One of the games they didn't win, they lost 7-0, famously. Uh, this this was not by any means free-flowing Brazil style of play, but winning battles all over the pitch, and they did slice through Stoke a few times, and they did not get sliced up themselves. And the, the, the upshot is they are right at the top of the seeded batch now, George Ellick. Blackburn Rovers, what a few weeks for them. Particularly... Tony Mowbray, who, you know, I don't want to bang on about this every time, but um, there's definitely a, 
a small section of Blackburn fans who um, almost seem to revel in, in when things go wrong because then the, the Mowbray out, the Mowbray has taken us too far um, conversations <laughs> arise. <laughs> Not quite. Taking us, taking taking us, us as far as he as can. As far as he can. He's taken us too far. Well, I guess what that works we, as well. What are we doing in the playoffs? What the hell? In terms <laughs> of pure time. Take it back. And, you know, I think of all the clubs in the championship when I talk about Blackburn, I say the same thing over and over again. So it might be quite tiresome, but I just look at that side again and just think it's amazing what he's doing. That is an 11 that, in my view, um, shouldn't be compared to last season, especially where they underachieved, shouldn't be in fourth. Um, We've spoken about there's been a lack of of good loanees. You know, last season we saw, um, you know, loads of, of quality loanees coming in from... From the Premier League, Cadre uh, is starting to prove now that he could be that on loan from Brighton. A, a brilliant, brilliant goal. Uh, John uh, Jan Paul Van Hecker played as well at centre back, who performed pretty well. So we're starting to see maybe a little bit more depth. They obviously had really bad injury problems to start the season, um, and this was a game against you know a decent Stoke outfit where there weren't many chances, but they managed to control it pretty well from being one up, but away from home. Um, and yeah, it's it, you know. An, an occasion where Ben Britton wasn't the Breton Diaz wasn't the um, the only man who was an attacking force. Uh, I mean, I, I still think it's going to be too much to expect Blackburn to to stay there. Um, and the, the sad fact is for Mowbray that he's probably now going to be judged on whether or not they they end up finishing in the top six. Um, but either way, he's I'm delighted for him because after that seven nil defeat, he came in for some real criticism, and then he gave a you know he gave a an interview after the game where he very much sided you know he 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 looked to align himself with the players maybe rather than the fan base, which didn't go too down to well in, in other parts as well. But three wins and a draw since, uh, I think is vindication for his, you know, the job he's doing and his, his attitude. I need to apologise to John Buckley because when we spoke about him for the first time, probably two months ago, six to eight weeks ago, uh, in discussing him and trying to describe him to listeners who hadn't seen much <laughs> of him, I called him functional, George. I called him functional. And like that was in my head, partly because... At that stage and and in previous seasons, he'd seemed to fill in in any position they needed him to, most notably right back. And I I don't think I'd worked out yet exactly where he was meant to play or where he wanted to play. But it certainly was one of the most incorrect adjectives I've ever used in a long list of them on on this pod over the last five and a half years. Couldn't have been more wrong, really. I mean, the definition is designed to be practical and useful rather than attractive. I mean, he is practical and useful, but certainly in footballing terms, very attractive. And and this probably his best performance to date. Um, I noticed a few weeks ago, Statsbomb, tweeted out some uh, some pressures metrics. This is a, uh, a Statsbomb-specific metric. It's to do with pressures, pressing, if you will, uh, for individual players. And at the top of the championship was Callum O'Hare, which was not surprising. Uh, and in second was John Buckley. And I think that speaks to how tenacious and how dogged he is, sure. But in this game as well, we saw what he can do with the football. Um, he can carry it. He can pass it. He got the assist I mean, completely fortunately, because the ball was cleared onto his back into the path of Kadra, who then dribbled forward and scored for 20 yards. But his performance more than deserved um, something like that. Uh, and he, he was fan- fantastic. And I think, you know, when they when they talk about Mowbray, when we talk about Mowbray, development, player development and patience with young players in particular has to be a massive part of it, has to be a huge part of it. Um, they have nine starters out of, out of uh, 11 under the age of 25 uh, the ones that aren't, well, one of them is the goalkeeper, Kaminsky, and the other one is Lenahan, 
who joined Blackburn age 17 and is 10 years on their, their leader at the back. Uh, so it, it's an incredibly young squad doing some fantastic things for the most part. Now, clearly not against Fulham. Uh, but if you take out that aberration in the 19 other games they've played this season, they've conceded 18 goals, less than a goal a game. And they've scored 34, which is the highest in the league. Uh, uh, well, not apart from Fulham and Bournemouth. So in terms of seeded batch potential, uh, they're doing well. They're looking really good and they're now at the top of it. Now, is the run, are the performances and the underlying numbers good enough to say, yes, this is the best team within that seeded batch no no I promised myself I wouldn't go over the top about any seeded batch team at the moment because there's always a few on a good run and there's always a few on a bad run and there's still well what is it 28 27 games to go so it's just worth noting that we're enjoying watching Blackburn Rovers we're full of admiration for for how they're playing as for Stoke a bad week for them 1-0 defeat to Bristol City 1-0 defeat to Blackburn just one of those weeks I think where everything was just a bit meh uh, they're missing Suter at the back long term. Thompson and Klukas and Allen missing here, which meant their midfield three was Sawyers and Vrancic with uh, Tymon, the left wing back, filling in at centre mid and it wasn't really working. Of course, Powell is, is kind of the, the, the jewel in the crown up top and he's out as well. So I think there are some mitigating circumstances, but it's been uninspiring for sure. Far from horrendous, though. Um, they need to be much more at it. In their next three, they've got QPR, they've got Borough and Coventry. That's two teams immediately above them and one who definitely wants to chase them down. So big few weeks for, for Stoke. Need to get back uh, on an even keel. And what about Hull City, George? It's not just two wins in a week, but it's four wins in a row in the championship. I remember when they had nine points and nine goals in 16 games. And we said we were a bit perplexed because we didn't feel like they were quite as bad as those results suggested, but that they seemed somewhat cursed in front of goal. Well, the curse has been lifted. Four wins on the spin. Grant McCann must be feeling very vindicated as well. I, I don't think when we were saying the goals are going to come, we necessarily expected them to suddenly go on a, on a four-match winning streak. Um, but this is the kind of run that can very quickly um, change the whole way that a season goes because they look to be petering out towards um, an inevitable relegation. Um, but you know, 12 points on the board is is a fair way towards the total that you need just to stay in the division. So, you know, for Grant McCann, uh, another manager who's come under some serious um, tissue because I, I don't think he's come under pressure because I think we've been aware that the Alams are very unlikely to um, do anything with Grant McCann as long as they're owning the club. Um, the, the fan pressure has clearly been there. And the quotes from the prospective owner um, <laughs> uh, call into question the long-term future of Grant McCann at the club, whether or not they're, they're 24th or 1st, I'd have thought. Um, but in this occasion, you know, Millwater aside to are, are very, very difficult to to beat. We, we know that. Um, they managed to go ahead twice. I thought the Honey, Honeyman's header was pretty incredible, given the, the deflection um, that kind of took it, it, took a nick on his way to him. So for him to be able to... Um, get his head on the ball and meet it the way that he did was impressive. I thought Longman looked possibly offside, um, but, uh, you know, I didn't see the the slow-mo. I didn't see the still, so I'm not entirely sure he looked offside to not me. Offside. I think he confirmed. Not, not offside. offside. No, I, there I, you go. You know, I, did, I went the extra mile. I actually paused it upon the initial shot so that I could say definitively on the podcast whether it was offside or not. Uh, I enjoyed the fact that the initial goal came from a cross, an excellent cross from Greaves, the overlapping left-sided left yeah. centre-back. Uh, he has quietly uh, and wasn't really being picked up on inevitably because Hull's results were poor, establishing himself very nicely as a starting centre-back at this level. Um, I think people forget just how young he is because he's played so much football already in his, in his young career, um, just 21 years of old. 
years of old, just 21 years old and uh, looking brilliant. And, you know, the more strings he can add to his bow in terms of trotting into midfield, trotting into the final third, whipping in crosses like that, going to catch the eye of, of clubs higher up the pyramid, that's for sure. Longman, you mentioned who scored the goal, um, just sort of mucking in left wing back today in, in this 3-5-2. You know, he probably considers himself a striker. At least that's how I remember him last season with Wimbledon. So uh, he's, mm. he's the sort of young player that just wants to play, wants to get things done. And uh, we have to respect that. And Nathan Baxter in, in goal, he must feel like a bit of a god at the moment because he hadn't played any games until four games ago. Now they've won all four here. Um, they didn't dominate this game, uh, we should say that. But in the periods where they played well, they took their chances. And that, it, it feels basically like a snapshot of a lot of their games in the first 15, 16 games of the season. But in those games, in the periods where they played well, they didn't really create or take their chances when they did. So uh, that's the major difference and it puts them in a much rosier situation. We had quite a lot of away wins as well in the championship this week. George, let's start with Borough's first win under Chris Wilder. They went mm. to Huddersfield on Saturday. And Dana, who tweeted us a Sunday scouting report, said it's the best I've seen Borough play in a long, long while. Beautiful, punchy possession football with two lovely goals. Huddersfield were poor, but it was a lot down to Borough's aggressiveness in the middle. Uh, Wilder certainly felt, and I can't disagree, that this his third game, this was the least they deserved in terms of getting their first three points under him. Yeah, I think that's the key here. Um, they've been very good. I've been incredibly impressed with what I've seen so far from from Chris Wilder's Middlesbrough in terms of, of every single aspect of their play. We're seeing a, a different style of play um, as highlighted by a very good Twitter account uh, at Lou Orns, a Watford fan, data analyst who normally posts... Um, you know, somewhat for the stuff, but generally very good about EFL things. And he has looked through kind of the data and back in the in the one nil, uh, sorry, back in the in the defeat to Preston in the midweek, Barrow only played seven percent of long balls, which was the lowest since uh, a one nil defeat against Villa in seventeen eighteen. And then in this game, um, they competed eighty seven percent of their passes, which was the highest since a two nil home win over QPR in February twenty nineteen. So there are two pretty um, clear stats to show that the um, the style is changing. You know, they are looking to keep the ball. They're looking to get it into feet. You, you look at the the amount of touches that the likes of Crooks and Housen are getting in, in midfield. Those players probably mainly bypassed and their role was more to be to stop um, the opposition attacking and then to to kind of play off the, the strikers. I, I was also impressed that he kept the faith in, in Sparrow and, and what more what more hauled off after 55 minutes in midweek. Uh, I thought maybe Ipiatu, um or Coburn would come in for him. Not the case. And then he scores two goals, the second of which was, I mean, they were both great goals, to be fair. Both, um, you know, you, you don't necessarily think of what more is as a clinical finisher. You know, he's somebody who is very good at carrying the ball. He's somebody who's very good at pressing. He's somebody who's very good at running in behind. But kind of playing a new role now, isn't he, really? Yeah, I mean, he's well, he's playing as a striker now, but he's not someone who, who you would think would be, yeah, as I say, the most clinical, but two brilliant finishes, the love for the second especially. Um, the goal they conceded was another freak goal. You know, if you're, if you're keeping tally, that's now four goals that Chris Wilder's Borough have conceded. Three of them have been, have been you know, completely ridiculous freak goals. Uh, two own goals and one where Sol Bamba decided to um, pass it against his own player from from a yard away for ML, ML Reese to smack home. So those are going to stop. The freak goals are going to stop. Um, I I think probably my biggest um, conviction right now in the championship is that Middlesbrough are going to finish um, much, much closer to to the top of the table than, than mid-table. Um, they already look like a far, far better team than they were under, under Neil Warnock. Three games under Wilder. They've conceded less than 0.5 expected goals in all three of them. 
proper info goal and in all three of them they've been above one expected goals on the other end as well those are, are, are good numbers good start on that front and Housen's quality for the first goal Crooks in the build-up for the second goal absolutely wonderful I must admit this game looked like you know this was a game between two of the seeded batch but it, it looked like promotion contender versus a bottom half team and that doesn't mean that's what these teams are because I think we all know in the championship it's very regular that a team has a good day and even more regular that a team has an off day um, but in games between this this group of teams I think it's rare that one team looks quite so superior particularly the away side so uh, really impressive stuff Huddersfield uh, well they won't feel so positive will they and uh, it's probably not uh, not a fair time but a good time to mention that they have the third woe the third worst open play XG4 in the league. So outside of those Sorber Thomas in-dippers uh, from set-piece <coughs> situations, they really need to find more consistent ways of creating chances in open play. Otherwise, you know, the flirting with the playoff places that we've seen so far this season is is not going to be repeated. How about Swansea 2, Reading 3? Uh, so much about Reading doesn't make any sense. Uh, perhaps, more, perhaps more so than anything, just the very top line, that uh, scoring goals for a team that's just had a points deduction in the championship, Andy Carroll and Danny Drinkwater. What a win for them away from home. Amazing. Um, and it's good because I think a lot of... A lot of neutral um, Premier League football fans would have had a look at this and and enjoyed it, which is good to see. But I, I mean, I made the point on Five Live on Saturday that, particularly with Andy Carroll, but with both of these guys, because their star has fallen so far, it's easy to forget that they are two like elite level footballers at their best. Um, you know, Danny Drinkwater was won the Premier League title and was a not didn't just win it; he was a key player in winning the Premier League title. What five years ago, Andy Carroll whether rightly or wrongly was signed by Liverpool um, as a young striker you know the ability that these two guys have dwarfs most championship footballers and um, you know with Drinkwater so far this season I definitely didn't expect this signing to work but he's been a revelation for them so far and you know this goal that was a, a fairly simple finish from a rebound um, is good because he deserves it for his performances so far for the whole season for Andy Carroll you know, he's made a massive difference. Reading with Andy Carroll playing up front compared to Reading with George Puskas playing up front is a totally different, um, it's a different proposition for opposition teams. Uh, the goal that he took, the, the first touch is pure quality and then the finish itself, even though it gets a deflection, he does incredibly well to do it. I think there's a, a massive danger of people underestimating what Carroll could do at Reading if he's fit. You know, we know that he isn't as mobile as he used to be. But there's no way that, you know, given his aerial prowess, his goal scoring ability, you know, he can score with his head, he can score with his feet as well. There's a danger of him becoming a, well, I think he's already become a bit of a joke figure. But he's going to give, if he's fit and and he did, you know, he went off with an injury and and who knows how long that could keep him out given his record. But if if he's kept fit, he could be a massive, massive positive, I, I really do think. And it's easy to, a lot of people seem to think that Andy Carroll, I mean, maybe his body isn't, um, isn't what most 32 year olds should be, but people seem to think he's like 40, he's 32. You know, if if he stays fit, you know, he's, he's, he's not over the hill. I I, I, I mean, you'll be 32 next year. I think you'd be delighted with that body at 32. Thanks very much. I would be. Yeah. Yeah. I think their biggest issue might be if he, if he stays fit for the two months that they have got him for the moment, if he's only got a contract till January, if he stays fit and he does more velvety first touches like that, um, cuts inside and scores more goals like that, then you know that th- there's no guarantee that he'll stay there for the rest of the season. It's one of those situations where you'd hope that he will be so 
grateful to the club for giving him a chance that he wanted and needed that he would stay and he would fight for whatever they're trying to achieve at that point but you know Ornstein's column this morning had a whole chunk on Andy Carroll at Reading which is great and the the point was he's only on a grand a week you know when he signs for a club who are in the in the midst of being deducted points for uh, spending too much money you worry a little bit but a thousand pounds a week at this level is is a very very small wage and the suggestion there is he needed a chance he's playing for the passion not for anything else uh, and it should be applauded so it was a brilliant brilliant goal that wasn't it I mean, it's just a crazy game this Swansea took the lead after three minutes and Reading equalized a minute later uh, Swansea went ahead again four minutes into the second half and Reading equalized a minute later as well so I dare say if you're Russell Martin it's it's one where you're going to be um, pretty upset that their sloppiness uh, in both of those instances was uh, notable um, but one thing that was cool to see was we spoke about Joel Pirot on our Friday night segment and you can watch that back on the Sky Sports website we've tweeted the link a few times over the last few days we spoke about Joel Pirot, Reese. Uh, of Preston, Jacob Brown and Elijah Adebayo, all strikers who are 22, 23, establishing themselves in in the championship and, and wondering what might come next for them. Uh, and one of the bits was, as well as seeing Perot score so many magnificent goals already this season, a little bit of how good his movement is and, and how it creates space for other players. Uh, and I said, now that his goal-scoring reputation is growing, defenders are going to have to get tighter and tighter to him when he drops in because they cannot afford for him to turn and shoot from range because he's so good with both feet. And the the, the first goal, I think it was, uh, was just perfect on that front. Perot dropped, he just he just dropped towards the halfway line. The centre-back was so tight to him and it created the space in behind which Patterson ran into. Good pass from Smith and Patterson scored. So that was very, very pleasing. Sometimes what we say uh, ends up looking quite smart. Again, not always, not always. Swans just, they still need to improve their attacking play though. As much as I like Joel Perot, as much as I like what Laird's doing, as much as I'm enjoying that the patterns of play and build up, you look at their stats for the season, shots inside the six-yard box, shots inside the penalty box, they're right down towards the bottom of the league. Um, for a team that's having 70% possession, it's clear that you'd expect or you'd want a little bit more than that. So plenty of room for improvement when it comes to Swans, not just in terms of uh, conceding sloppy goals, but also just in, in creating better, more clear-cut chances more frequently. Uh, their rivals, Cardiff, got a big win away at Luton, Georgia. It was their first first half goal of the season from Colwell. A really good win for Steve Morrison. He'd had a, an impassioned rant after their defeat in midweek against Hull where the fans had expressed frustration that they weren't getting it forward. Uh, and he had what was a very impressive rant. I might read out a few of the quotes um, after we've heard from you, but um, he wanted to make it very clear that's that's not how he sees this Cardiff side playing long term. But they still went to Luton and they did have to battle with this, both the goals, crosses and headers. And I noticed that Cardiff have scored 21 league goals this season. 15 of them have been headers. That's 71% of their goals headers. The next highest percentage is Huddersfield with 30%. That's the next highest in the league. Um, unbelievable. And a lot of it is down to uh, yeah. the delivery of, of Ryan Giles. Let it be on record that if I ever have a child, I want Ryan Giles to deliver it. <laughs> Amazing. I'm going to have to try and somehow make that happen now. I wonder if he'll be up for it. Um, yeah, Ryan Giles is, is clearly the one who who provides most of the bullets, but Perry and G with, with one of the assists here as well, whose delivery himself isn't too bad. I think the difference here <clears throat> compared to what we saw uh, with Mick McCarthy is at least um, these two goals were, were, were from open play or at least, you know, the phase came um, after a set piece, which makes them a little bit less one dimensional because previously those those headed goals were mainly just coming from corners and free kicks. And when you have Kiefer Moore as your striker, um, 
it's no bad thing if if he if a lot of his goals are coming from with his head because he is so good in the air in and around the the six yard box and the same can probably be said of James Collins as well. I was um, relieved to see that Steve Morrison played a you know a, a first team basically. Um, I, I you know I have a lot of time for him and he's doing an incredible job but I was getting concerned about his persistence in playing untried untested um, youth team players who he'd clearly worked with before ahead of people like um, James Collins and the like I mean Colwell is, is the one who's obviously broken through and has proven his quality here but you know for um, yeah for Isaac Davis who has come from not playing at all to starting two games in a row who's obviously very very energetic and I think they need to win games of football. It and, was the and by striker situation here, last week that wound you up the most, wasn't it? Zimba starting and then Collins coming yeah. on at half time and changing half time, and then and then Collins not playing again next time up. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because they won and they beat a Luton side who are, who are struggling at the moment. Um, it was, yeah, as you say, a couple of very good balls in from NG and and Giles won the game. Um, for Cardiff, it's it's been a massive few weeks because it's it's pushed them away from danger. Um, I I don't think we're seeing you know unlike the Chris Wilder effect at, at Borough where the level of performance has jumped to such a high level that I now have to kind of recalibrate how good a team they are. For Cardiff, there's obviously been a, a massive improvement. Um, whether it's a kind of sustainable one going into the, the rest of the season, I'm not entirely sure. I'd still be pretty surprised if Cardiff were any better than the mid-table. But um, I'm, I'm happy for Morrison because I think for a, a caretaker manager who's done such a good job in the first few games, to have to deal with um, fans' audible um, you know, dissatisfaction um, you know, he he took a massive risk by doing what he did in midweek, coming out and you know fighting fire with fire, uh, and it would have looked not great if they had gone down and lost in what was a very difficult game against Luton. So credit to him, and I'm sure the fans are massively appreciative of his support. Sorry, the the players are appreciative of, of his support as well. Here's a, a section of his seven minute uh, answer in midweek. We want to change the style. We wanted to have a more progressive approach rather than having it too hectic or frantic with loads of transitions. We want it. Uh, we want to be in far more control. We want to dominate games of football and have more possession than the other team. We will have more shots on goal. We will limit them to less shots because we have the football. We won't force the ball into a dead end. We'll start again, come back and try and play out and go the other way. We'll go down one side, come back the other side and all of a sudden Ryan Giles is in a 1v1 situation. It will allow us to get more crosses in the box, which will allow us more final third entries. People are talking about the style of play, the progression. It's there for all to see. We are going to dominate games of football with the football. We're going to create more chances than the other team and we will give up less chances than we did previously. We are not just going to give the ball away unnecessarily just because we've had a few too many passes. If I flip that game on its head, he's talking about the 1-0 defeat to Hull, and we win 1-0, everyone tells us it's a really controlled, dominant performance. Everyone will shoot me down and say we lost the game. Yeah, we did, I get that. But it's the style, the progression, it's the way we want to play. It's the longevity of the message, the longevity of the play. It's the way we're going to come together as a group. I mean goosebumps to be honest it's it's not quite russ martin's famous no plan b rant from last season but i'm not gonna lie it does excite me it's and it's, and it's my personal taste of how i like to hear managers talk about the game and I, I suppose to an extent my personal view on on a good way to play um does it mean it's going to happen and and they'll be able to execute it and build a team that can do it consistently no and he's actually got a big job on his hands because the squad doesn't really suit that at the moment so I'm not expecting it overnight I'm not expecting Russell Martin Swansea football overnight and I don't think they'd want a carbon copy anyway um but it does excite me particularly mixed with the young players that 
uh, are being developed more so than than usual, more so than at most other championship teams. I don't think it guarantees success at all because that comes down to implementation, to adaptability and, and to recruitment, quite frankly, over the next few windows. So uh, I just think in order to be patient with a manager with a, a process, to use that word, it is important for them to communicate it. And I think he did that really well. I, and he did it in a way that I enjoyed. So, um, yeah, go well, Steve Morrison. I enjoyed that, mate. Birmingham beat Blackpool 1-0. And much-needed win, you have to say, for, for Birmingham. And Blackpool, they haven't lost many in the last, what, 15, 16 games. So um, a, a good scalp for Blues, uh, albeit a narrow home win. Blackpool was strong in the first half here, but the second half was Birmingham's, uh, and that's when they got the goal. Ryan Deeney's on, on the NTT20 squad. He is one of many excellent contributors there he's a blues fan and he writes these incredible match reports which gives me new more insight into Birmingham than we could ever uh, expect to <laughs> garner ourselves um, and so I thought I'd share some of his thoughts about the, the the second half performance and why it came about because probably better than than what we could do at this point um, he said second half we turned the game into a scrap we went man for man across the pitch in midfield we were tighter we started winning the second balls and showed more composure in possession Sunjic started to turn out and play McGree became heavily involved and the team started playing with momentum Dini and Hogan were able to play closer together and created chances for each other and that's the first time they've been able to say that in the last few games then Anike replaced Bella they went to a diamond with Jordan Graham playing as a right back Anike in the 10 role at the tip of the diamond uh, Jordan James, 17-year-old, who made his first start, I believe, in central midfield, started running in behind into the right-hand channel, and they won the shot count 7-2 to two in the second half. Um, McGree to Pedersen, Pedersen crossing. James with the little flick header into Djokovic, who was on hand to, to score the winning goal. Now, Ryan says, not a game where I can say anyone performed above a 7, but nobody was less than a 6 either. And that feels, you know, um, a little bit more... Birmingham at their best under Bowyer. That seems a bit of a weird thing to say, but in terms of playing as a unit, very aggressive out of possession and doing enough to create some chances as well. You, George, thought that possibly offside, and I must admit, in the moment, it was the first thing I said, and even having paused it on Quest, hard to tell. Hard to tell from the angle. Hard to tell. Um, yeah, I think the thing that looked maybe offside, I think his feet are fine, it's his head that I think might be offside and obviously anywhere that you can score, anything you can score with. Um, the only thing Duke can score with. No, that's harsh. That's harsh. He scored, he scored with his foot here. I know, I know. Uh, I, I and then the other, I mean, it's boring, but the other thing is it was clearly a penalty on Lavery um, as well, at 0-0, which would have changed the game. Um, he was very unfortunate not to get that. But, yeah, you know, I mentioned there, we talk about managers who have certain traits and, and I think Lee Bowyer is definitely one who we feel often can struggle to get his team out of a rut. It feels to me like he's, he's you know, he he gets quite down on, on luck and, and down on their chances and for them to put in that second half performance where, as you say, they scrapped and, and they won it through kind of sheer determination rather than any great quality was impressive and then the tactical switch that, that seemed to change the game as well. Jordan James, who you mentioned, 17 years old, he signed a new long-term contract yesterday, so hell of a weekend for him. First start, first assist, new long-term contract. Um, but he's only there through necessity because, you know, we know that Ryan Woods um, and Gary Gardner both serving suspensions. So, you know, the chips were down here um, and it was a difficult game against the Blackpool side who we know have been very, very good recently. So it does feel like this is more significant than a run-of-the-mill 1-0 home win against a team recently promoted. Um, it looks to me like this is... Yeah, I think this will give everyone at the club a bit of belief. And, you know, Boyer complaining about refereeing decisions uh, last week. I think he can find himself, well, definitely on the right side of one with a penalty and then, and then it, you know, getting the... On a toying cost of the offside decision, um, it came up. He called ahead, and it came up ahead. So, yeah, he can't um, 
be too downbeat now about uh, the men in the middle. The top three in the championship all drew. Uh, in fact, if QPR fail to beat Derby on Monday night after we record, then none of the t- top six heading into the weekend will have won. Uh, Bournemouth and Coventry drew 2-2. Two, two. two great crosses from Jaden Anthony uh, was the difference early on. One curled all the way in, one onto the foot of Philip Billing. That takes Anthony to six goals and four assists, 10 goal contributions already this season from, well, the league's breakout star, I would suggest, c- compared to where he came from and how little we had seen of him. But it wasn't really the, the performance of promotion elect was it um they shot themselves in the foot with some sloppy play which led to Lerma's red uh and then you know the 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 Coventry spirit uh that sexy intangible spirit is hard to measure but it certainly helped carry Todd Kane's cross into the far corner um Mm. for the equaliser I think you could tell that Bournemouth were missing Kelly and Cahill their starting centre-backs and Zamura as well being out in recent weeks has made them look a little bit less bulletproof a little less potent as well but Preston won Fulham won you want to talk about the goal George because it was wrong in in so many ways um and then I'd like to talk about how I thought that their their performance deserved it yeah um if can I feel like I'm just talking about decisions a lot here but but we have to talk about it um as as you say Preston did deserve the goal so we don't get too caught up but it's that the equalizing goal from Chad Evans is um just I think there are probably four at least four offenses um where it is a foul from Emil Reese uh, on the keeper it is then a handball from Emil Reese possibly two handballs I think it might come off in one hand and then the other hand and then I think it comes off Chad Evans's hand to go into the goal as well even though it was destined to go in and Emil Reese is standing in an offside position so um yeah it it is confusing as to how it, it's been allowed to stand um but as you say i mean the the i think the the preston xg was 2.2 I, I guess a fair chunk of that will be uh chad evans kind of slapping it in from from the goal line uh with, with no one in front of him but um but yeah certainly they, they just they were very very good value for the point easily could have won it as well um and this is another weekend where even though um even though fulham and bournemouth are so clear at the top of the table Every so often we have these weekends where we see that there, you know, the, the gap isn't that big. You know, you've got a, a Bournemouth side who are now winless in three. You've got a, a Fulham side who have drawn back-to-back games against Derby and Preston. Um, you know, these are not teams who are too good to go on on a kind of run that could see others come back in. So, you know, the the, the key thing for Marco Silva and Scott Parker is going to be to to warn against complacency seeing Scott Parker's interviews I think there's absolutely no chance we're going to see Bournemouth be complacent but I guess even us as two guys who have to cover the leagues and other EFL you know championship fans as well um these guys aren't aren't untouchable and and Preston were unlucky not to get three points well the the next question is is anyone good enough to make up the amount of points and therefore put a run together that would be necessary in order to do that. Um, Probably that, not. That's the next question. Um, yeah, I was really impressed by Preston in the second half. Impressed. I was impressed. And, uh, Were you? When? I was impressed with 90% of, uh, of Preston. And, and that 90% was everything apart from the, the last pass, everything apart from um, the, the penalty box, basically. I thought the centre-backs dealt very well with Mitro and others. I felt that Whiteman, McCann looked like a really good midfield duo and Brown as well. Um, they did really well. It's the first time this season Fulham have had less than 10 shots in a game. 
Um, they only had two on target, I think, as well. So um, they restricted Fulham uh, much better than, than any other team I've seen, really, um, this season. I think that deserves a lot of credit, but they weren't quite there in the final third. Lots of nice build-up. I thought they worked it well. They, they didn't just go long to Reese. Um, they, they played through the thirds pretty well as well. It was impressive stuff until the final third, until the penalty box. I felt like, and I don't want to dig anyone out, but I do think Josh Earl, as a, as an attacking wing-back... Um, that's where a lot of Preston's attacks go to die because I'm just not sure he's quite got the delivery. I'm not sure he's quite got the attacking nous to to um, help them create a lot of chances from good positions. And he did get into a lot of very good positions. So I think opposition teams will funnel them out left as, as much as possible. And that could be a, uh, something for them to overcome, put it that way. We had two nil nils as well. West Brom Forest on Friday night and Barnsley against Peterborough on Saturday. The less said about those games, the better, so we won't. Uh, but we'll talk about League One, where going into the weekend, we're pretty excited because six of the top seven were playing against each other and two of the three games ended in a draw. Wednesday 2, Wickham 2, Rotherham nil, Oxford nil, or Oxford nil, Rotherham nil, I should say. The other one almost did. It was one all between Plymouth and Wigan heading into extra time or into injury time, I should say. But Wigan got the win. And for the second week in a row, George, and maybe I'm getting a bit old and a bit soft, but for the second week in a row, I'm going to suggest that there was just something about Wigan's winning goal right at the death here, like Derby's win against Bournemouth last weekend that felt right, felt like the club, the staff, particularly playing staff and the coaching staff and the medical staff were being rewarded for pretty much the hardest week you could imagine having in football. Yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah, the the Charlie White story. Um, you know, firstly, it, it does sound like he's he's in an okay place um, health wise, but I I can't really imagine what it must be like to be training and to see one of your teammates collapse uh, like that. Um, you know, I think I, again, I said it on the radio on Saturday. I think it's very important to use our platform to ensure that those who hear about another footballer going down, um, given the recent spate of issues like this should know that Charlie White made it very clear and decided himself to come out afterwards and, and and wanted it to be made public that he hasn't been vaccinated. So any um, listeners or people who've, you know, saw this initial story and, and, and jumped to a conclusion, that is factually an incorrect conclusion. Similarly, um, at no fault of any, any of the reporters who reported it, at, at Hillsborough there was a delay to the game and it was reported initially that a fan had collapsed in the stands. It's since transpired that there was actually just a scrap between fans which led to a commotion, the stewards being called and the big misunderstanding as well. So, you know, I, I think there, there clearly is something happening at the moment. Um, whether it, it seems too much maybe to be a coincidence, but the reason for what, whatever... what reason we're seeing the, these um, issues I think these are two scenarios here where um, you know we can rule out anything I should say at this point that Colin Murray is doing a a special on this uh, on this topic on Tuesday night on Five Live a proper look at the the spate of footballers and other people suffering sudden illness collapse out the blue uh, is clearly something that's on a lot of people's minds at the moment and Colin's taking a good look at that so if you're interested if you're concerned dare I say it Tuesday night Five Live's the place to be yeah, for sure. But anyway, I mean, you are right for for, for Wigan. It's a it's a big win. Wyke is going to be a, a big miss uh, on the pitch. I know some Sunderland fans have taken um, some pleasure in the lack of goals. You know, he hasn't been prolific this season, but I think any Wigan fan uh, and certainly the Liam Richardson, you know, his work rate up front 
and his ability to bring others into play has definitely had a big positive impact on their season so far and the good form of both uh, Will Keane and, and Callum Lang who are the two goal scorers here and, and Keane getting out a white nine shirt just you know all we can always say here is, is fingers crossed that we see Charlie White back on um, the football pitch as soon as he's healthy to do so and hopefully that is very soon um, for, for Plymouth Argyle you have to feel sorry for them um, it feels like they I don't think their early season form was built on anything but quality. So I think it's, it would be unfair to say that their their luck has turned because I don't think they were getting lucky in the first place. Um, but this was another performance against a decent side where they they played okay. They played fairly well. They did enough to get a point um, and they only went down to a very, very late goal. Um, it's going to be difficult for for them to rally here and it's going to be hard for Ryan Lowe to, you know, the, the key thing, I think, when you get a club who performs so far above expectations early on in the season... Is it's up to Ryan Lowe to now show his players that they they were there by merit. This wasn't a lucky run, which they're now destined to fall away from. Um, you know, they had 15 shots in the game. I think they had 27 shots against Wickham in midweek. Uh, they've come up against some decent sides and come unstuck, but but I do have faith that that will turn um, fairly soon. But Wigan now um, level on points with Rotherham with a game in hand, and you do feel like maybe the two class teams in the division are probably now occupying first and second. Mm. Well, more finishes like that from Callum Lang. Not just the finish, but the the presence of mind to... It wasn't even that he let Keane's through ball roll across his body onto his right foot. He actually had to essentially nutmeg himself in order for the trajectory of the ball to be perfect for him not to disrupt it and, and therefore be able to run on and finish low across uh, Cooper. Absolutely brilliant play from Lang, who I'm so delighted to see him getting so many minutes this year because it's probably three seasons too late for me. I've, I've wanted Wigan to be developing developing him in a Wigan shirt more over the last few years. And, and here we go. Now we're seeing it. Um, at just amazing, amazing scenes in the away end. Absolutely incredible. Fans travelling six hours across the country for it. Uh, I know many sets of fans do that every weekend, but it's always nice to see them uh, rewarded, I will say. And and yeah, just, just lastly on the white thing, I think just uh, in terms of of showing our admiration for for how the the players and the staff coped with that situation. It wasn't just the terror of, of seeing that happen to your teammate, but then having suffered a traumatic event, um, and many of them could easily have been in shock, to then have to play an away game at Cambridge, uh, to then have to play an away game at Plymouth four days later. Not a lot of time at home, not a lot of time with your loved ones, who I dare say are the ones you want to see most after something like that. Tough days and long days for, for Wigan last week. Um, and uh, and they, they ended it in incredible fashion on the football pitch. Uh, Wednesday 2, Wickham 2 and Rotherham nil, Oxford nil. Um, just to touch on them because they were significant games. I mean, uh, Wednesday are feeling pretty positive after their performances this week. And I understand why. Yeah. The, the return of Luongo and Windass. I had this game on at Quest and... I think it was only last week maybe or maybe two weeks ago where I said I haven't enjoyed really watching Sheffield Wednesday play even in the games they've won or the games they've drawn. It hasn't been an enjoyable watch for me which is a shame because I expected attacking football under Darren Moore. Well the return of Luongo and Windass has changed that. They certainly look much more composed on the ball, um, more goal threats and a really nice way about them. So they, they were definitely the side on top for the majority of this game. I would say that you know, the, the, the XG shows them to have dominated. Wickham's goals were a counter-attack and a set piece. There were quite a few occasions in the first half, particularly where Wickham um, 
gave a scare to, to Wednesday on the break. You know, it was a game plan from Wickham. It wasn't necessarily that they were just dominated. And there were occasions where they, they turned them in behind and McCleary particularly was dangerous. Um, so I, I think both teams played their part here. Um, encouraging signs for Wednesday. And for Wickham, a great point, really. Seven points from their last three in, in, a, in a tough week is an excellent return. They're still in yeah. perfectly good nick. And then the, the Rotherham Yellows game, I couldn't believe that Rotherham hadn't scored in the first half. They looked like they were all over you, uh, hit the post, hit the bar. But then by the end, they, they had either petered out or maybe Oxford deserve a lot of credit for wrestling back control. Or maybe it was a windy Kassam and the team with the wind were always going to have the play in the first half and the team with the wind in the second half were always going to have the play. I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, nor do I, to be fair. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, um, I think, f- from an Oxford point of view, this week has been a massively positive one um i think the you know, we mentioned before oxford's poor record against top half sides and going into a game against rotherham being battered as you say for the first half with 13 players out and, a, and, a, and an emergency keeper in in a, in a funny way i think that will be the performance and the result that will maybe tell a couple of oxford players and maybe fans that you know this season they can you know mix it with the big boys and there's no one to be to be afraid of really so um, yeah, in many ways, that is a nil-nil draw. That, and I, and I know that Oxford, some Oxford fans won't like saying that a nil-nil draw at home to, to Rotherham feels like three points, but it did. To be fair, I, I think most fans expected to come away with nothing and to get four points from two games. Uh, having had to um, postpone the sat- Saturday, last Saturday's game against Wigan, was uh, beyond anyone's expectations, and Carl Robinson rightly delighted with it. Five years of Paul Warner at Rotherham. They've been relegated or promoted in in every full season. In fact, even the season that wasn't a full season, they were relegated from the championship. Um, uh, We just wanted to, or I just wanted to say, I love Paul Warren. I love him as one of the 72 managers that we cover in the division. Uh, It's not just because I like the way he manages uh, his team in terms of how they play, the intensity that he's able to achieve and the way that they are like, they're like soldiers on the pitch in in how regimented they are, but how dangerous as well um, in attack is so impressive. Um, Clearly, if they do win this division, uh, I'm going to be pretty chuffed because we even had Rotherham fans telling us that our prediction of them to win the league before the season started looked a bit uh, off the mark. But also, uh, as as a bloke, as a man, not that we know him personally, but just comes across so well. Uh, and I think represents Rotherham as a club in an absolutely magnificent way. And that is not the sort of thing we talk about or rate managers on, particularly on this podcast. We're more fussed about the footballing side, but it is important. Um, the manager is the, is the, the most recognisable face or name in, in, a, in a football club, mostly, um, apart from potentially Cole Stockton at Morecambe. And, um, and it's important, I think, that they represent the club in a, in a good way. And I don't think you get many better than Paul Warren. His emotional intelligence, um, the way that he's spoken about mental health problems and helped to uh, continue that conversation, develop that conversation, has inspired players and fans and neutrals alike. So uh, we love Paul Warren and good stuff. Ipswich beat Crew 2-1 on Sunday. Bursant Salina, more like Bursant Cantona. That is, I mean, Stockton's Great goal, goal will be goal of the season. But that is incredible from Salina. Incredible. Yeah, it's an amazing, amazing goal. Um, amazing goal. A, a player whose quality we know means he shouldn't never be playing in League One anyway. I think when he left Ipswich when they were in the Championship, if you told them then that he would come back when they were in the League below, uh, they'd have been pretty surprised. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those goals that I think everybody, um, I've seen lots of major social media people and outlets tweeting this morning because it is that good so make sure you do watch it i mean the one thing i would say is ipswich had loads of chances to kill this game 
Um, they've ended up scoring an own goal and a wonder straight from Selena, conceding uh, halfway through the second half and, and having to sneak past crew at home. Um, Paul Cook has to find a way to get this team converting their dominance into into goals because at the moment they're that side who, when they're poor, they lose and when they're good, they don't always win and they should have been out of sight here way before crew were able to get back into it. Um, but it is three points. It is goals, having not scored for, for, for a few games on the trot. Um, I mean, it, it does now feel hard to see them going on the kind of run that could see them catching the likes of Rotherham or, or, or Wigan unless there is a massive shake-up because they do seem to have issues at both ends of the pitch. Um, but a, a big win nonetheless. I think that was a, a massive game for Paul Cook. If, if Ipswich hadn't won yesterday, then I think the Knives really would have been out for him. Sunderland went to Cambridge and won. Big win for Lee Johnson and, and the Sunderland players because in midweek they were ahead against 10-man Shrewsbury for more than a half and didn't win the game. And that is patently unacceptable for any team really uh, playing against 10 men and giving up a lead. Uh, an amazing winning goal, albeit it was in the first half, nice and early from, from Nathan Broadhead on loan from Everton. One of many Everton young players we've seen this so many times haven't we i think of McElhenney and garbert who are they're they're even a generation above broadhead so it it is or was everton club policy to much more so than any other team i know give academy players who become reserve players a second professional deal so it's quite it's quite normal for a 17 18 year old academy player to get let's say a 3 year contract their first proper professional contract that is very normal across the board what is much less normal anywhere apart from Everton is those players coming to the end of those three years having not played for Everton for the most part for the most part having not got anywhere near playing for Everton for the most part having loans in League 2 and League 1 and for the most part doing okay but not standing out then getting another two or three year deal um, I, I actually don't know the exact ins and outs of Broadhead's contract situation at Everton, but he is 23 and he's on his second League One loan with Sunderland. He feels like a young player because, apart from a, a spell at Burton two seasons ago, we haven't seen him much in the EFL. He's mainly been playing PL2 and scoring loads of goals at under-23 level. But he's not particularly young in, in age terms. He is still a young player in footballing terms and senior minutes. Um, I just find... It's, it really hasn't got anything to do with anything because we're talking about a, a Premier League club's policy. But it is weird, isn't it? Like Garbutt was the big one who he, he's like 25 by the time he leaves Everton. He hasn't really played for them. McElhenney, I always think, still a young player. He's like 28. Um, Broadhead, Broadhead, another, another part of it. So I don't know if there is any Everton fans listening who can shed some light into it. It seems like a very strange strategy to me because I can't really see how Everton get anything from it. I don't really see that the players get a lot from it in career terms, albeit I'm sure they do very well in financial terms. Uh, it's all a bit strange. Anyway, it's a brilliant goal. And George, important for them, um, it's quite hard to be too convinced about Sunderland's performances at the moment. They, they definitely seem a level or two below Rotherham and Wigan, for example, that you mentioned, Wickham as well, perhaps. Um, but they're still in a great position with those games in hand. So, you know, I'm, I'm not that impressed at the moment, but an improvement in performance level and get back towards where they were at the start of the season. And they're... You know, I'm by no means writing them off. That their main issue at the moment is injuries and a lack of squad depth. McGeady is out for a few months. Luco Nine's now out for a few months, and you're you're looking at a starting eleven that doesn't look particularly exciting. Dare I say it? And I'm not sure there's a huge amount of depth either. Like when you see the the squad of 
18 to 20 that Rotherham have, you know that if he has to make two or three changes, maybe the wing-backs who get rotated a lot or one of the central midfielders comes out for a rest, you can be pretty confident that there's not going to be a big drop-off of quality. With Sunderland, I'm not really sure that that's the case. Mm. So that, that, I, think, I, I, think there's, I think it's kind of an imbalanced squad rather than a lack of depth because you've still got, you know, you've got Aidan O'Brien, an only substitute on the weekend, Elliot Embleton in the same position as well. Um You've got Alves, who we don't know a great deal about on loan from, from the Premier League club who can't get a game as with Dunn. So they're kind of stacked in defensive and central midfield, uh, but then not a lot of wide options, which is where obviously McGeady's been so important. So, I mean, I think with Sunderland, my big issue is just their their performance levels. Um, you know, this was another game where they've scored a either direct from a corner or, you know, with a, coming off a post and hitting a keeper and going in, however you want to see it. And they've scored a wonder strike from Broadhead. Um, this has been a, a run of six or seven games now where they, they haven't been able to be look like a side who are able to control um, both, you know, you know, control the game, uh, create a lot of chances and prevent the opposition from doing so. So, um, yeah, th- this isn't Sunderland out of the woods yet for me. I, I'm still a little bit concerned with them. For their opponents, Cambridge, that was their third defeat in four. The other one, a draw against Wigan. Um, it, it, it means two things. One, it, their poor form means that Sam Smith's incredible individual form is being a bit overlooked. He's got five goals in his last six games in all comps and some of them some brilliant finishes as well. But also in, in Cambridge terms, it means that they've dropped a little down the division. We should point out that all four of those games have been against top six teams. Um, those aren't the teams that Cambridge are expecting to or need really to take points off in order to stay above the dotted line. Having said that, it's just a tough scenario for them. So many away games at the moment because of quirks of scheduling. Um, and, you know, albeit I'm kind of excusing them for one point in four against top six teams. Next up, it's Cheltenham away. Then it's Charlton away. And then it's Rotherham at home. And then I think Wickham away. So it's not getting any easier for them in, in terms of fixtures. And, you know, I, as I say, I'm excusing the last four. But if it's another four without a win, uh, then whether or not they've played tough teams or not, it, it's, uh, you know, the pendulum will have swung quite significantly. Um, Morecambe lost 4-0 to MK Dons, George. This one, on the balance of play, not a 4-0 <laughs> game, but in classy moments, definitely a 4-0 game. <laughs> in particular, one young man that we've become pretty enamoured with. The life of Riley. Oh, I love I love the life of Riley, mate. Growing up, listening to the you lightning seeds. Just the lightning get seeds. just oh, Dad, can you put Life of Riley on again, please? I hate Dua Lipa. <laughs> How do you know about Dua Lipa back then? That's only gonna make sense to people who've watched Quest. And good. I want in jokes with only people that have watched Quest, because everyone should be watching Quest. Oh, lucky you. What do you think about the life of Matt Riley? He didn't get it, did he? He didn't get the reference again. I didn't care uh, about the reference. Why does everyone? Why does everyone care so much about music references from songs that were released before I was born? Why am I expected to know the titles and artists of songs? It's stupid. Uh, Marvelous, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm. I think the key here is is a bit of concern for Morecambe. Um, I mean, I know as you say that they, they played okay here. They didn't deserve to lose four 0 but they are starting to to drop pretty quickly down the table and you know there's there's no shame in that we know that they are um they have a hell of a um task on their hands to try and get out of this um Stockton not available to play here and they, they clearly missed him they missed his goal scoring ability Courtney Duffus Dufus I'm not entirely sure I'd say his name but I don't want to offend him um 
not you know for or you know it's a pretty difficult role to fill but for mk dons i feel like a lot of for the last year a lot of times mk dons have deserved to win games 4-0 and haven't so maybe have the odd occasion where they they're able to um to, to batter teams like this uh, is deserved and, and in o'reilly we've got a player who you know I, th- I think is one of the best players in league one and is destined for for very very big things delighted to see him get on the score sheet a couple of times first on the little roll onto his right foot and just passing it into the corner mm. was just rare quality yes. for the level i almost got carried away and likened him and his performances to Deli Alley in League One for MK Dons. And wow. then, George, I watched a YouTube compilation of what Deli Alley did for MK Dons in League One. And then I reminded myself that he's about four years younger than Matt O'Reilly was when he was <laughs> is when he was doing that. Incredible. And I thought, no, we will not invoke the good name of Deli Alley. Uh, when I he- loved the um, I loved the quick free kick as well for the second. You know, he made it. He made it. Um, one win in nine for Morecambe, as you say, and it was that halfway line buzzer beater from Stockton at Fleetwood they've lost the XG battle in all of those as well I, I don't think I don't think they look horrendous if you watch the games that they're, they're very rarely dominated they're very rarely second best by miles but they seem to find it both tough to defend stoutly for for 90 minutes without making mistakes and outside of Stockton they're really struggling for a secondary or even tertiary goal threat um, there was a period where Phillips had a good run of goal scoring form, attacking the box late, scoring from crosses, but he hasn't been starting the last four games. So something obviously not right there. Uh, Portsmouth have won four league games in a row. I think it's six straight in all comps. And the fans in that very exposed away end at Gillingham uh, on, on that day of all days weather-wise got some serious reward with an injury time winner here. Um, uh, some great Danny and Cowley versus Steve Evans and Paul Rayner beef here as well. Um, uh, a very cheeky... Uh, release of a social video behind the scenes content from Pompey uh, not long after the final whistle really stoked that fire but uh, couldn't can't pretend I didn't kind of enjoy it Steve Evans said the celebrations on the bench resembled World Cup stuff a bit disrespectful really it doesn't matter when you win you should never be disrespectful but we will take the pain and we will go again and it feels like they're feeling quite a lot of pain uh, certainly the Jills fans the brunt of it um, but certainly Evans at the moment is not cutting a, a happy figure um the motivator motivates the motivator, as he said the other day. He think I think that means he wants someone to motivate him, but I, I don't know who that would be. It's not happening at the moment. Uh, as for Pompey, um, how excited should we be getting about four wins in a row? It doesn't escape me, George, that they started this season with three wins in a row, all against fairly poor teams, uh, as we now know. It's not quite the same on this run, but Jills are in a bad place. Wimbledon at home, 2-1 win. They left it very late. Wickham... That win was a complete smash and grab for Pompey. And the only yeah. one of the four where they've really obviously been much the better side was Lincoln in midweek. So I'm impressed by the results, but I'm trying not to get carried away. Yeah, and and here they probably should have conceded a penalty with, with Bazunu's um, rush of blood to the head that seemed to go um, unpunished. Yeah, it, it's hard to say. I think I think in this occasion they had the chances to be ahead before they did. Um, George Hurst with a, a lovely chip that was tipped onto the bar quite early on other chances as well um but it was an own goal in the 94th minute that's meant that they've won it so um i'm happy because you know i do think that they have good people in charge at pompey and um it was getting to a stage where you know the cowley brothers position was going to be coming under question but this run whether sustainable or not has, has definitely um put that onto the back burner and put them in a position now where if they are to improve they're within you know shooting distance of the playoffs um but as you say when you're you know when we're talking about league one at the moment it does just feel like and, and i must say you know i didn't speak about wednesday but they were way better they look like a side who could really improve to be one of those sides but from where i'm sitting rotherham and wigan just seem to be um 
it's those two and then the rest and uh, and Pompey, you know, not near the levels of those other two. Shrewsbury, the first team to beat Johnny Jesus Jackson's Charlton Athletic. <laughs> uh, they left it late. Cosgrove with a strong challenge in Charlton's box and then glancing nervously towards the referee. But ref was quite happy for, for play to continue and Udo made the most of it. Um, three big goals from Udo recently. It'd be huge for Shrews if he could turn into a, a regular dependable goal scorer. Um, they really need these home points, particularly Shrewsbury, because they've only got two from nine away games. So until they improve that, they're, they're giving themselves basically only half of their allotted games in order to get the, what do we reckon normally, 45 points or so that they might need to stay up this season. Uh, Steve Cottrell, very emotional after the game, very proud of his players after a very difficult few weeks where they've played some of the, the better teams in the division. Uh, Lincoln lost 1-0 at home to Accrington, uh, which was something of a surprise given Aki's recent form. Uh, both teams went into this with 21 points from 18. So uh, I think it was quite an important one probably for the for the psychology of both sides. And both had, had won one of their last six in the league. So now Aki looking a little bit rosier and Lincoln are, are probably the ones who are going to have a tough week or two now. And wonder if all is well there. Colby Bishop having missed three games through suspension before this after a stupid red card for violent conduct in the FA Cup. And Accrington losing all three of the games in which he was suspended came back in absolutely bullied the Lincoln defence. How about this for aerial win percentage, George? Colby Bishop, 75%. Lewis Monsimer, 22%. Adam Jackson, 29%. Sensational target man performance uh, and got the winning goal as well following in a shot. So big, big win for Accrington. And then Burton 2, Doncaster 0. I mean, George, very rarely could there be a team who have won two games in a week with a 6-0 aggregate, six points across two games, that I could give less credit to. Like, Burton can only beat what's in front of them. That's definitely true. But what's been in front of them this week has been horrendous. First Accrington <laughs> and Doncaster this weekend, who now have one point from 11 away games this season. Yeah, Doncaster are, are, are very, very poor and they offer next to nothing here. But, but I do think there's, you know, you can beat teams and you can beat teams and, and Burton have, have done so with a, a, a panache and a flair that hasn't been the case with all teams that have beaten Accrington so far and Doncaster. They've been really good. I, I kind of disagree with what you're saying. Yes, it might be easier to come up against two of the, the poorest sides in the division. Yes, Accrington put in a performance that was under what we'd expect from them. But I think that Burton should have won this game by far more than two goals. Uh, I thought that they... Um, just look really good to both ends of the pitch. Very, very strong defensively, created loads. Uh, Jebison is, is clearly a player who's getting to grips with his first loan now and, and looks to be, um, you know, last season uh, and for, for, for long parts of, of early this season, uh, Kane Hemmings was clearly the, the goal threat at Burton. They've now got a, a front three of Hemmings, Jebison and Smith who look to link really well, all three of them providing threat from open play. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of sweeter on Burton. Yes, they've been suited by the games, but I do think we're probably going to see uh, an improvement from them on the back of these two mm. results. Wickham away. You've, Rotherham you've gone for away. Burton. MK Dons at home. Sheffield Wednesday away. It's a, it's an absolutely disgusting next four for Burton Albion. And I don't think this is their level. I think it's a little bit lower. So I'm, I'm predicting not many points in the next four, just like before this week. It was four defeats in a row, but I did enjoy Jebison's back heel. There's no denying that. All not well at, at Doncaster. Richie Wellen saying after this, my hands are tied and my legs have been chopped off. Now that is, dub, you know, that's 
that's adding insult to injury, isn't it? Double jeopardy. At the moment, that's the way I'm working. What do you want me to do? We can't put a team on the pitch at the moment that's consistently going to get results at this level. We've got players on the pitch that haven't played at this level before or are just starting out. Today, we just got bullied a little bit. And to be fair, with the team that we put out, it was always going to happen. So even the manager suggesting that he didn't expect much from that game. It's not a good place for Doncaster Rovers right now. And the big question is, would sacking Wellens make anything better? I think there's a, a general feeling that some of the stuff he says about the squad and particularly the injuries but also the 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 potential for reinforcements and building a stronger squad for the level are, um, are probably not that likely so uh, difficult situation there league two it uh, was not a classic day in league two I'm, I'm afraid to say um i'm going to start by mentioning rochdale even though they drew 1-1 with exeter i'm not going to say anything other than I'm going to make a prediction like I did with... Um, who did I do it with? Was it Coventry I said early in the season? They're going to score four or five against someone uh, in the next few games. Rochdale are going to thump someone. Between now and New Year's Day, I'm giving myself just over a month, uh, inclusive, they're playing on New Year's Day. They're going to score four or more in a game in the league, Rochdale. I'm confident about that. So that's a prediction to start the League 2 chat. And you can tell me anything new about Forest Green 2, Bristol Rovers nil because I'm struggling to find new things to say about Forest Green at the moment. I know. I know. It's so easy. They go down to 10 men and they still coast to victory. Um, I think in, in Jamil, Matt and Matt Stevens, they've got two guys who are basically having their own competition, not just for, for club top goal scorer, but, but maybe league top goal scorer as well, with Dominic Telford in there too. It's just that there's so much. Um, it, it's so easy for them. I guess the only bit of analysis we can give is that Bristol Rovers have failed to beat nine man Salford and then failed to score against 10 man Forest Green. So maybe um, the, you know, I thought we were going to see an improvement from them, but the week couldn't really have gone worse. But for Forest Green, it's just, just more of the same, a, a team who know how to win and do it consistently. They're on 12 wins. Next best are two teams with 10 and they both got them this weekend. George, tell me about your old mate John Brady's Cobblers beating Orient 1-0. This was a game between two teams that keep a lot of clean sheets. Uh, Northampton now averaging better than one every two games uh, and in the top two for set-piece goals in the division as well. So perhaps not surprising that Hoskins' winner came from a, a long throw. Yeah. Um, Second not place a great now, deal. Cobblers. Yeah, they're going very well. And they, you know, this is two sides who, as you say, are set up incredibly um, solidly. They don't concede many. Um, Orient, we know on their day, can, um, yeah, can, can rack up a few. But here, but yeah, but I, I don't think any team is going to go to six fields and, and score loads a season because of, of Northampton's defensive stability. Even if uh, Horsford and Guthrie haven't been quite at their best at the back recently, but but this time it was fairly simple for them. Um, well, Guthrie, always... Guthrie was uh, unavailable and he was replaced Ooh. by Max Deich. Recognise that name? Um, Max yes, Deich. Sean's son. He made he made his debut last season. He made I his think. first league start on Saturday and he got the assist. A little flick on for Hoskins. Nice. Love it. There you go. Love it. Um, yeah, two good sides. Two good sides up against each other. Not much between them, but um, yeah, big win for Cobblers. Sutton won Barrow nil. This was not two good sides up against each other. In fact, Sutton didn't play very well here, you know, compared to their own lofty standards, but they still did enough to win. That makes it 10 wins in the last 15 league games, having started so poorly. Uh, had the season started on the 1st of September, they'd be top of League Two, Sutton United. It's absolutely sensational. Uh, Adjaboy has taken to EFL football so well, hasn't he? And such a live wire out wide. Um, generally, 
we we don't see him doing what he did on Saturday, which is cut inside and firing a, a winning goal with his left foot. Um, which just shows the confidence that they're playing with at the moment. And why wouldn't they? Uh, Barrow continued to be fairly miserable after we spoke about them being fairly miserable last Monday. I know the fans, um, particularly Daniel, who's a Barrow fan on the NTT20 NTT squad, he's been pretty baffled by some of the team selections and the you know, uh, square pegs in round holes at the moment for Mark Cooper as he tries to land on a, a shape, a system, a personnel that can actually work. Uh, and Vale beat Hartlepool 2-0 after a surprisingly poor week for Vale in which they lost against Oldham last weekend and then Walsall in midweek. Uh, and they won this one without Tom Conlon, which was a big test for them. Uh, in fact, it was the other central midfielders who who got the goals, Garrity, and then the excellent Tom Pett, uh, Dean Gripton, who's on the squad, who's the EFL uh, head of EFL research for Football Manager. Uh, he was at this game doing some EFL FM research, and he was very, very taken by the performance of Tom Pett. Uh, quite out, quite apart from the brilliant solo goal that he scored. The main, the main story for me here is probably Hartlepool, though, because they've now lost five in a row. Uh, four of them since Dave Challoner left them in the lurch for Stockport. Uh, all of those defeats against teams in the top half, so some mitigating circumstances. But of course, they were in the top half at the start of the run. And now they're down, I think, in 17th. So, you know, they're, they're eight points above the relegation zone. I'm by no means saying I'm worried about them dropping straight through the trap door. But the next appointment's really important because... The, the players are clearly low on confidence and that doesn't dispel my notion or my theory that Challoner was, you know, as transformative a manager, um, as influential a manager as you see really at this level. That means that it's a tough gig for the next man. And I note that Gavin Strachan, son of Gordon, who's currently first team coach at Celtic, he is the favourite as we speak. So maybe they've chosen their man. Maybe it's Gavin Strachan. A couple more, George. Uh, Carlisle's first win under Keith Millen. They left it late against Sadlers, who are hard to hard to put your finger on at the moment, Walsall. Yeah, they are. Um, I'm, I'm, they look to me to be one of those sides who isn't good enough to be right at the top, but it's far too good to be dragged into the mess of the bottom of the league too and will end up being somewhere in between. Uh, but for Carlisle, they've been part of that mess. And, and this is a big win. You know, This is a big win for Keith Millen. It's a big win um, to get them basically arrest a slide because they've been so poor um and to get you know the, i think the means of the win with it being a very late goal at home in front of their fans has got to be a big positive as well in terms of getting the fans on side and getting behind millen as well because there there's no way I, i'm totally convinced there's no way that that squad and that team should be as poor as they've been so far this time last year carlisle were top of league two um they went into this one so close to the bottom so um yeah it's going to be a tough job for millen but th- yeah we saw here a better performance. It was by no means, it was a pretty tight game and won um, late on with a, you know, a, a decent enough goal from a set piece. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how they progress from here. Mm, he'll be feeling a million dollars after that one. <laughs> Crawley won Mansfield too. This was all about the Hawk, Ollie Hawkins, um, who has now played 18 league games this season, George. In nine of them, he started at centre-back and in nine of them, he started as a striker. And, as old as I get, I'll never not love that. It reminds me of the classic old champ man players who who were 
centre-backs and strikers. Um, Doherty was always the famous one, wasn't he? Um, was it Dion Dublin as well? Uh, as a Caradas, I always remember, um, as a name who could fulfil both roles. And he, he's just done both very well, Hawkins. When he moved to centre-back, it's because they really needed someone to perform well at centre-back, and he did so, helped turn their form around at the back. Uh, and then in this game, he scored the first goal and provided a magnificent outside-of-the-boot assist for the second. Crawley, in fairness, didn't offer a huge amount, aside from Tilly's screamer to equalise. Uh, a very, very poor performance, you have to say. And then Salford 2, Oldham nil. From a Salford perspective, it's like deja vu. Last Monday, I ended up getting quite angry, didn't I, about Salford, about how every Monday after they win, I look at the numbers, I look at the who's done well that week, and I think, yes, this is it. They're going on a run now. But they still haven't won back-to-back games this season. Every Every time I speak about them, I say, I'm not going over the top with praise here. Just do it again. Do another win. And then they never do. So, again, gauntlet laid down to Bowyer on his side. Do another win. But Oldham's a story uh, because Keith Kerr was sacked last week. Honestly, I thought he was doing about as well as can be expected. Um, but we know that the Oldham ownership don't think about football in, in the same terms as we do. Um, Selim Benashore is their caretaker manager now. Pretty remarkable playing career he had. A very elegant playmaker. Uh, Tunisia International was at the 2002 World Cup. And a bizarre, George, bizarre managerial career to date, which is both bizarre and also very much fits the blueprint for various people that have come through the door at Boundary Park over the last four years. Yeah, he's worked um, in Romania. He's worked in Poland. Uh, I don't know much about the clubs he's worked at. He's worked as technical director. He's worked as manager. He's worked as under-18s manager at Rochdale. It seems like a pretty bizarre CV. Um, I have no idea if he'll be any good or not. He's got a, I think he's got a UA4A license, hasn't he? So, which suggests he's certainly gone to school uh, in terms of, you know, he'd have, he'd have learnt all there is to learn about being a coach. But I, I've, it seems pretty weird that if he was the right man to to manage Oldham, then why has he been managing the under-18s for the last year? His um, under-18s we'll Oldham team were doing well. They 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 had uh, they had just picked up a great win against Bradford in the Youth Cup, and they're getting ready for a, uh, the next round against QPR. But I mean, all of that I felt the need to say that because you, you know, but that's clutching at straws, isn't it? I'm I'm genuinely pretty terrified for Oldham at the moment. I think the fans are doing an incredible job of continuing to highlight how well their displeasure at the current ownership. Um, I don't I don't I don't I don't get a sense of these guys being or feeling any sort of particular shame in in the trajectory of the club towards non-league and so I don't know what it will take for them to do what the fans want and and put the club up for sale at a reasonable price and and start moving it out of their hands into the hands of someone who will be able to do better for the football club I'm, I'm pretty terrified of what will happen if Oldham go out of the football league this season with this current ownership at the helm I think it could be it could be as bad as it as it gets, and it could be as bad as we've seen uh, with various other clubs over the last few years. Last but not least, George, we've got a new member of the uh, League Two management squad, Paul Tisdale, who we've seen at this level before, of course, with Exeter, uh, with MK Dons last season. He was with Bristol Rovers very briefly. What do you make of Stevenage appointing the well-dressed Tisdale? <laughs> um, it's it's a decent appointment, I think. It's a, it's a slightly different. Um task for him and my only concern is that he's done well with sides who are looking to get promoted with kind of players who are maybe maybe technically better than than other teams they face in the league you know his extra side got promoted a great deal um whereas his uh record in terms of trying to 
keep teams up when they're maybe not as good. You look at, you know, he was sat for MK Dons. He took Exeter down from League One a few times. Isn't so good. So, you know, he's certainly got more experience and more nous about him than, um, than, uh, uh, yeah, than, than Alex Revel. But um, often fans, you know, MK Dons fans, Exeter fans aren't quite as um, sweet on him after he leaves. So, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I, I don't know what to make of him in this role where it is a case of purely we need to stay up. Um, we'll see. He, he certainly has a good, decent understanding of the game um, and the track record of getting teams promoted. But I don't know. Yeah, on I, the fence. I, I am joining you there. Uh, no strong stance here. It's, it's, I find him a really tough one to, to judge. Um, I really think Exeter was such a unique case um both his role there and the club itself at that time i think it's very hard to translate that to try and predict performance at another club um where the situation is very different where the objectives are different where the dna of the club is very different um in at mk of course he did a good job getting them promoted from league two he was having a torrid time the next season in league one uh, a lot of that he put down to to injuries which certainly were undermining him but you know, he he wasn't able to get on top of that. And then at Bristol Rovers, I'm, I'm happy to just draw a line between that. I think Ben Garner is showing us this season that having a bad record managing Bristol Rovers 2021 season doesn't mean you're a bad football manager. So, um, I, yeah, I think I think fine. Could be good. Might not be good. Could, could exactly it could be great it could also be feasibly you know I'm, I'm fairly convinced that Keith Hill going into Scunthorpe will be a good thing for them even if they go down you know he's going to probably improve them with Portisdale he feasibly could be anywhere between a 0 and a 10 in my head I, I just don't know great Scunny played some nice stuff actually <laughs> in the first half yeah. on, on Saturday enjoyed it didn't get the win but I enjoyed it that's it from us it's been the Not The Top 20 podcast Monday pod a breakdown of this weekend's EFL action and one which we hope you've enjoyed and if you have Wow, would you be able to retweet? It helps us to reach new listeners, which is uh, obviously our goal, and to grow the podcast. We're, we're so grateful for the support of our sponsors in Betfair, who allow us to do what we do in, in such depth and dedicate as much time to it as we do. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, it's been an absolute joy and a pleasure. I've been Ali Maxwell. He's been George Alec. We'll talk again on Thursday. Go well. <laughs>